Very good morning, church family. Uh, today's Bible reading is taken from Hebrews chapter 5, verses 1 to 10. Uh, that's Hebrews chapter 5, verses 1 to 10. For every high priest chosen among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorance and wayward, since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is bound to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes his honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but he was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, You are a priest forever, after the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who, who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks so much to the Mokwene family, to Martha and Marfil for, for that prayer and for the Bible reading. Folks, just before we come to God's Word, I just want to update you. Um, many of you contacted me during the week, this past week, asking me about uh, KZN Relief. What are we doing? Uh, how are we responding? And those are good and right responses um, good and right impulses from God's people. So thanks for getting in touch. We, we did actually manage to uh, send down um, a consignment this, this past week. Uh, we split it into two, so we sent uh, one half of the consignment to um, a sister church in Peter Maritzburg, and they are distributing it to three vulnerable communities. And then the other half of the consignment we sent down to Umschlange, and uh, they will distribute it to vulnerable communities um, up and down the north coast of, of Durban. So thanks very much to everyone in our church family who was involved, and there were a number of people involved, people initiating, uh, people offering solutions, people giving of their time uh, and their expertise. So, so thank you to the church family um, that uh, have uh, enabled us to respond in this way. And of course, we'll keep you up to date. I've also been in touch with our Bishop Glenn Lyons, our presiding bishop, to see if there's any way we can help our um, churches in KZN. So um, we'll keep you posted um, as, as anything else develops in that regard. Why don't we pray and then we'll come to the passage that Marfil read for us. Join me in prayer. Uh, Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that he has opened a way that we can access uh, the throne of grace this morning. Uh, we, in our better moments, Lord, we recognize we need to know you. It is our greatest good to know you. And so we pray that you would be merciful to us this morning, that you would speak through your word, that you would draw us to yourself with bonds of love, and that you would change us for your glory. And we can only ever pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We all want to get to God. Whether we admit it or not, we know He's there and we know He's good. 
We get a taste of Him in our loftiest thoughts, in our deepest joys, in those moments when it's so beautiful that it hurts. We want God. That much most of us can agree on. Most of humanity can agree on that much. But then it starts to break down because we do want God, but we want to access Him on our own terms. We want to access him in ways that suit us. So if I'm an intellectual type, then I access God through the purest of thoughts. If I'm an emotional type, then I access God through the deepest of feelings. If I'm a physical type, then I access God through the most pleasurable experiences. If I'm a traditional type, then I access God through established cultural practices. Uh, That might be mass and the saints, or it might be slaughter and the ancestors, or it might be baptism and church membership. If I'm a social type, then God is found in fellowship with others. If I have a strong sense of justice, then God can be accessed through my sexual purity or through my advocacy for the marginalized. Do you see how it is? We all have our ways of accessing God, and surprise, surprise, they tend to suit us. They tend towards our particular preferences, our particular personality types. And those preferences end up bending God himself so that he starts to look a lot like me. By choosing the route, we end up choosing the destination. If I'm a spiritual person and I say that the way to God is through mystical experience, well, guess what? God becomes a mystical force. He becomes a secret in the universe. Or I might say that the way to God is through the prophet, the man of God, And then God becomes a service provider, and all I need to do is sow a seed. If I'm a moral person, I say the way to God is through keeping the rules, and then God becomes a schoolmaster. You see how this works? This is the age we live in. Designer God. God is bespoke. He's cut and trimmed to meet our particular tastes and desires and preferences. A philosopher called Feuerbach said, Man is not made in the image of God. God is made in the image of man. I think you'd take one look at our culture and say, you see, what? it's exactly what I was saying all along. You are making God in your own image. He's just a projection out of you. But if there is a God, and we know there is, then that just can't be. Can it? Per definition, we do not get to create him. He creates us. That's what it means to be God. And we don't get to decide on access. He does. This is something that the nation of Israel had to learn the hard way. The sons of Korah were swallowed by the earth. King Saul lost his crown. Uzziah was covered in leprosy, all because they wanted to define access to God on their own terms. But God alone defines those terms. The letter to the Hebrews was written to a community who were being persecuted and they were under immense pressure to define the terms of access for themselves, to define the terms of access to God for themselves. They were Christian, but they were under pressure to return to their Jewish roots And access God through the terms of the Old Covenant. That was their sweet spot. That was their comfort zone. That was their default position. 
they were under enormous pressure to go back to that. Under the old covenant, we've been looking at this in our past few weeks while we were still in Hebrews. Uh, of course, we had a break last week, but, but you remember, cast your mind back a couple of weeks ago. Under the old covenant, access to God is mediated by the high priest. And the high priest had a very important office with very strict qualifications. What the writer does for this church is to show them that Jesus is even better qualified than the high priest. He's infinitely better qualified. In a sense, he takes, in these verses, he takes the two CVs and he he places them side by side, the CV of the high priest and the CV of the Christ. And he says, look, compare. Jesus is better. So let's do that. Let's, uh, Let's go with him. We start with the qualifications of the high priests. Uh, what, what were they? Very simple. Very simple. Solidarity and appointment. Hebrews 5 verse 1. For every high priest chosen from among men, solidarity, is appointed, appointment, to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. Verse 2 goes on to unpack this solidarity, the idea of solidarity for us. It says, He can deal gently with the ignorant and the wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. The high priest held an incredibly high office, but the dignity was in the office, not the man. He was just a man from amongst men. Someone described it like this. The high priest was subject to weakness in body. He he sometimes became ill. He suffered trauma. He got tired. He ate too much. He was aging. He was subject to weakness of intellect. He sometimes felt stupid. There were things that were simply beyond him. He made mistakes. He was also subject to weakness of emotion. Sometimes he lost control. Sometimes he was depressed. The feelings of others controlled him. Indeed, he was part and parcel of the universal community of weakness. The high priest was just a man from amongst men. And if we stop to think about it, we can see God's design in this. If he's meant to represent ordinary people, he must never lose sight of the fact that he is just an ordinary person. The design is to keep him humble in order to make him useful in service. And verse 3 points in that same direction. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for the sins of the people. On the Day of Atonement, he would have to sacrifice a bull. And while it was being slaughtered, he would have to lay his hands upon it and confess his sins. And then he would have to take the blood from that sacrifice into the Holy of Holies and sprinkle it on the mercy seat, and then seven times in front of the mercy seat. And all of this for his own sin before he's even begun to think about atoning for the sins of the people. We can see why. I mean, all of that would have been a vivid reminder why the high priest would be able to deal gently and gently with the ignorant and the wayward. The sacrifices reminded him. They were were an incredibly powerful visual aid reminding him that he was just a man amongst men, a sinner amongst sinners. And that would make him gentle in the way he dealt with others. 
Just an aside, that should be true of us, shouldn't it? When we remember our own weakness and sin, it's then that we tend to be gentle in our dealings with others. It's when we lose sight of our condition that we tend to be self-righteous and perhaps even angry in our self-righteousness and our judgment of others. And we too have a vivid reminder, a powerful visual aid of our solidarity with the rest of mankind. It's called the cross of Christ. It should make us incredibly gentle in our dealings with others. Worth reflecting on, but the point here is that the first qualification of the high priest is solidarity with the people. The second qualification is appointment. Verse 4, and no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. If the first qualification stresses the humility of the man, the second qualification stresses the highness of the office. It only comes by God's appointment. It is a calling, not a career. It is one of great honor. We can see all of this in how the high priest was dressed. So listen to this description. The high priest first donned a linen tunic. Over this was placed a robe of blue. Attached to the robe's hems, hem were pomegranates artistically woven from blue, purple, scarlet yarn and placed intermittently between small golden bells that rang musically with his every movement. A richly woven, multicolored sash held the robe in place. Next, an apron-like ephod woven of gold threads, finely twisted linen, blue, purple, and scarlet yarns was worn over the robe, a priestly apron. The shoulder pieces of the ephod each bore a large onyx stone set in gold filigree. The names of the twelve tribes were engraved on the stones, six on one, six on the other, in order of birth. Then fastened on the front of the ephod by golden chains was a breastplate, a square tapestry of gold, blue, purple, scarlet, and linen that bore four rows of three stones each, twelve great stones each engraved with the name of one of the twelve tribes, all twelve next to the priest's heart. Lastly, the priest was crowned with a turban of fine linen bearing a plate of pure gold and the Hebrew inscription, Holy to the Lord. We have a number of fashionistas in our church family. Um, just off the top of my head, I think of Ma Gugugule, I think of uh, Felicity, I think of Bantu, and I'm sure there are a host of others. Uh, here's a challenge for you ladies. If you can make, produce the garment that I've just described, according to the specs that I've just laid down, David Kobedi has committed to wearing that every Sunday to church, right? So there's the challenge. I'm throwing it down. You can be thankful it's not Eddie who's committed. That's a whole lot more fabric. David is committed, and, and there's your challenge. Uh, hopefully it can be ready by the time we are done with church at home. We look forward to it. Point being, we can see how the ideal priest, how this, how this ideal priest would have been incredibly appealing to the church that the letter to the Hebrews addresses. He was a humble servant with a highly exalted office. Would have been enormously attractive as a means of access to God. Of course, the ideal priest didn't exist. Aaron himself 
led the people in idolatry and he betrayed his own brother. The very first high priest was a deeply flawed human being. But the ideal was still very attractive. So how could the writer to the Hebrews keep these people from turning back to that attractive ideal, that attractive illusion? By showing them that Jesus is even more attractive and he is no illusion. And of course the same applies to us. We need to see that Jesus is more attractive than any of our alternative access plans. Infinitely more attractive. It's not good enough just to say no. We mustn't go that way. We must see the beauty of the alternative. Jesus meets the same two qualifications, and he doesn't just meet them in theory. He meets them in reality. He fulfills the ideal. He surpasses the ideal. He shows that the ideal high priest was nothing but a rusty signpost pointing to the real thing. So let's look at his qualifications. Second CV. First, he was appointed. Look at verse 5. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, You are a priest forever, after the order of Melchizedek. If anyone was entitled to the job, if anyone had a legitimate claim to high priesthood, it was Jesus. But he didn't demand it. Literally, the text says he didn't take the glory for himself. It reminds us of Philippians chapter 2. Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, something to be clutched or clung to. Rather, he was appointed by God when God spoke the words of Psalm 2 at his baptism. Let me just read uh, Mark's account of Jesus' baptism for us. Listen to these words. In those days... Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son. His Father appointed him at his baptism. His Father spoke the words of Psalm 2. Psalm 2 is a royal psalm. It recalls God's promise To the king in the line of David, I will be your father, you will be my son. God speaks those very words to Jesus at his baptism and so declares him to be this long-awaited king. Now this creates a little bit of a problem. Because Jesus is king in the line of David. David is from the tribe of Judah. But the law stipulates that the high priest must come from the tribe of Levi. So how can Jesus be high priest? This is where the writer turns to Psalm 110. Psalm 110 is another royal psalm. Verse 4 in that psalm, the Davidic king is declared to be priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. He is not in the priestly line of Aaron from the tribe of Levi. He is part of another priesthood altogether. We'll look at that in some detail in a couple of weeks' time. What we want to see now is that Jesus is declared by God Almighty to be king and priest. He is the king priest, the royal priest, the priestly king. He could not have better credentials. He could not be more qualified for the job. In fact, he's uniquely qualified because he alone was appointed by God to hold both offices, king and priest, at the same time. 
as priest, he could approach God in a way that no other king could ever hope to approach God. As king, he exercised the authority of God in a way that no other priest could ever hope to exercise. He was uniquely appointed. He was uniquely from God. His second qualification is solidarity. Jesus was from God. But Jesus was also from us. Look at verse 7. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. We see his solidarity with us in his prayers of anguish as he was approaching his death. If we look at his life and ministry, Jesus must have had many occasions for praying prayers of bitter tears, through bitter tears, for, for praying with loud cries and tears. Many occasions. Bitter tears must have been a regular part of his prayer life. We think of him next to the grave of Lazarus. We think of him uh, standing over Jerusalem in all of her wasted lostness. We think of him in his outrage at the hardness of heart in the synagogues. He had so much occasion for praying prayers through bitter tears. And who hasn't been there? Who amongst us hasn't been there? Who hasn't cried out to God through tears? If you haven't, it's only a matter of time. As J.R. Tolkien said, to be human is tragedy enough. Jesus knows your tears. He wept them himself. This is no ivory tower priest. There were many occasions for tears, many. But to pray and weep in the face of death, that's what verse 7 says, that's only one occasion. That's only one location. That's the Garden of Gethsemane. Let's listen again to how Mark describes it. Jesus said to them, he's addressing his disciples in the garden, he said to them, my soul is sorrowful even to the point of death. Remain here and watch. And going a little further, he fell on the ground and prayed, if it were possible that the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. And here's John's account. Now my soul is troubled. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. The Old Testament also gives us a window into his tormented soul. Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from, from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer by night, but I find no rest. Our fathers cried to you and were rescued, and you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind, despised by the people. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is no one to help. 
if you have ever prayed through tears, if you've ever cried out to the Lord in your pain and heard nothing, as if those prayers were bouncing off a cold, hard iron ceiling above you, if you've ever felt like the gates of heaven are locked and you're on the outside, if you've ever felt like that, if you are feeling like that right now, Jesus knows what you are going through. He has been there. He has been out in the deep waters, deeper than we will ever be. He has felt the desperate isolation of being God-forsaken in a way that we never will. Jesus knows what it is to pray through bitter tears and to feel as though no one's listening. No one's there. And yet he was heard. Verse 7 says he was heard. He was heard because of his reverence. He was heard because of his godly fear. As one commentator puts it, he was heard because he recognized the Father's will and followed it through to the end. In Jesus, the fire of suffering burnt itself out as he took his stand in obedience. He suffered to the very end of suffering. And that's why suffering didn't win. That's why his death was the death of death. That's why he rose again. That's why Psalm 22 starts with lament, but it ends in praise and rejoicing. Do you see that he is uniquely qualified to be with you in your suffering? To be with you when you feel God forsaken? When you feel your prayers are not being answered? There's no one who can come closer to you in a time of suffering. There is no one who better understands. The road you are on, he has walked before, but he's walked it right to the end. And he will show you the way. He will carry you across the line. Jesus is with us in our hour of trial and temptation. He's also with us as we learn obedience. Verse 8, although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. Now what can that possibly mean? Jesus Christ learned obedience. It's even more confusing when you look at verse 9, which says that through this learning he was made perfect. But isn't Jesus already the perfect son of God? Now, the writer even anticipates our question by beginning verse 8 with, although he was a son. He learned obedience. So what does it mean to say that Jesus learned and that he was made perfect? Well, it doesn't mean that he became more holy and godlike. It doesn't mean that he grew in divinity. It means that he grew in humanity. It means that he experienced the cost of obedience in the form of suffering as a man. And so he was made complete as a man. Part of human experience in this world is suffering. Part of human experience as a believer is the suffering that comes with obedience. And we can see this playing out in his life and his ministry from start to finish. We go back to his baptism. Let me read it again for you. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove and a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son. And here's the part I didn't read before. You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. You are my beloved son. 
That is Psalm 2. With you I am well pleased. That is Isaiah 42. If Psalm 2 was about the king, Isaiah 42 was about the suffering servant. If Psalm 2 was about Jesus' identity, Isaiah 42 is about his mission. So right from the very beginning of his ministry, at his baptism, he knew that obedience would cost him. That learning obedience, exercising obedience would be painful. That to reign he would have to serve, and to serve he would have to suffer. Right from the beginning of his suffering service, his focus was on sinners. Right from the beginning, his suffering service was two and four sinners. He was baptized in the Jordan. John's baptism was a baptism for the forgiveness of sin. The Jordan was a river of sin, and Jesus plunged himself into that river. Why? Not for his own sin. He was doing it out of solidarity with us, with sinners. He was with us right from the very beginning of his ministry. And he stayed with us right to the very end. It's no surprise that when he is describing the cross to his disciples, when he's trying to explain the cross to his disciples, he speaks about the cross in terms of baptism. He describes it as a baptism. If the first baptism had been symbolic in water, the second baptism was real. It was real. It was a baptism into death. The cross was his ultimate act of solidarity. The cross is where, in the words of the Apostle Paul, he who knew no sin became sin for us. Jesus is qualified to be our high priest because he is like us in every respect, yet without sin. And even sin. He entered into sin. In solidarity with us, out of compassion for us. Are you grasping what this means? You have a Savior who has suffered. The pain that you feel and fear, He has felt, He has feared. He has faced it and He has overcome. But not as a superhero, He has overcome as a human being. He is like us in our weakness. Do you see what an enormous comfort this is to us? I hope you're beginning, I hope it's beginning to land on your soul. What an enormous comfort this is. If you are running a race and you are struggling just to put one foot in front of the other and you've come to the end of yourself, the end of your resources, what a comfort it is to have someone next to you who has run the same race but has run it all the way to the end, who knows how it plays out, who knows every contour, every rise in gradient. He knows the way, and he'll get you there. I imagine it's something like childbirth. Now, I know the moment I speak about childbirth, I'm entering onto sacred ground where no man should fear to tread. So bear with me, ladies. But I imagine it's something like childbirth. I imagine to have your mother who has been through this pain and knows the beauty of how this pain ends I imagine that's an extraordinary comfort for those who have the privilege of having their mother alongside them, with them, through their childbirth. My wife Joan had breast cancer. I've seen the enormous blessing that other breast 
cancer sufferers have drawn just simply from speaking to her. And simply because she has walked this road before them. Jesus is the priestly king of the universe. But he's also our friend. He's a friend to sinners like you and me. He is with us. He is for us in ways we can scarcely imagine. What a comfort that is to us. His appointment by God, his solidarity with sinners make him uniquely qualified to act as our high priest. There is no other. One final implication for us. It's there in verse 9. Let me read it for us. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. First thing we want to notice is his obedience on our behalf means that the baton of obedience passes to us. And because he's like us, our obedience is going to be like his. It is going to be costly. We're going to have to suffer for obedience. I spoke briefly about this last week in a different context, but we arrive at the same place. Those who tell you that the Christian life is the end of suffering are either lying or they are just ignorant. In many ways, the Christian life is the beginning of suffering because it's the beginning of true obedience. Now, why do we keep bumping up against this theme, bumping up against it in the text? I think it's just God's grace to us. We need to know this. We need to know this. We need to be prepared for this because if we don't know it, we very quickly become disillusioned. If we don't expect to suffer as Christians, we will either think there's something wrong with our faith or, infinitely worse, we'll think there's something wrong with our God. We need to know that suffering is part of the territory, that we are going to suffer, but we don't need to despair of our suffering. Why? Because Jesus is with us. And he's walked this road to the end. And at the end, there is exquisite joy beyond our wildest imaginings waiting for us. And of course, there's joy along the way. We'll come to that theme later on in Hebrews. Another encouragement for us is that obedience is learnt. It even had to be learnt by the Lord himself. He had to learn obedience. So don't despair if you are not the disciple you should be. Don't despair. What matters is that you are not the disciple you once were. What matters is not perfection, but progress. Progress. What matters is that you are learning obedience and that he is with you every single step of the way. One area where our obedience is different to his, it's obvious, but we need to say it, our obedience doesn't achieve salvation. His does. Our obedience is merely a witness to his. Let me read our verse again, verse 9. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Our obedience is merely a witness to his. It's merely an anticipation of the eternity that his obedience won for us. And that brings us back to where we started. Jesus is our high priest. He is the only way to salvation. He is the only way to access God. The only way. Whatever your preferred means of access, I want you to hold up the two CVs. 
CV of the Christ and the CV of your preferred means of accessing God. Hold them up side by side. Whatever your preferred means of access, do you see now how bent and twisted and pathetic it is? Look at your self-help system. And then look at Jesus. And then fall on your face in adoration. He is our high priest. There is no other. Let's pray. Father, we give you great thanks. Endless thanks that you have made a way. And that the Lord Jesus is that way. He is the way, the only way. He is sufficient, he is perfect, he is all we need. Keep us from the folly, the madness of trying to make our own way. Help us to see him as he is and to worship him as he is so that we can enjoy every blessing of eternal life with you. Amen. We come now to communion and Eddie's going to lead us in that.